Please be seated. Our scripture lesson for today comes from Romans 10, 12 through 21. So please follow along in your Bible or the Red Pew Bible if you wish. That's Romans 10, 12 through 21. For there is no difference between, between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did you not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me, and I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God and Father, as we come to your word, teaching our hearts, opening our eyes that we might see, and um, just creating belief and trust in us. Pray that you would be near all of us sinners as we seek to hear and apply your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So um, I remember reading a story a while back about um, the, the, the 1980 um, New York City mayoral election um, where the, the incumbent mayor was Ed Koch or Koch, and I don't know how to say his name, so just to be clear, even though this is an illustration that uses a political election, I have no idea what the like big picture politics of this thing were, right? But we're going to say Koch. Ed Koch was um, running for re-election, and there was this, this scandal brewing because um, New York City was apparently broke at the time and had no money, and he had decided to... Um, spend a bunch of money anyway to create bike lanes all over New York City. And I am a biker and love bike lanes, but in 1980, when New York City was broke, this had, you know, the hallmarks of kind of a political scandal and was poorly implemented. But anyway, um, so he's having a press conference about some other stuff, and a reporter stands up and, you know, and tries to get him to get this scandal thing going. And he says, Mayor, in light of the financial difficulties New York City is facing, how could you possibly justify wasting all of this money on bike lanes? And Coat reportedly looked at the guy and he said, yeah, it was a terrible idea. It was one of, my, one of the worst choices I made in the last four years. And that was it, right? Because he, I mean, that's what he said and the reporter stood there for a minute and then everyone shrugs and moves on and there was no scandal about it. And it's striking to me, I still remember that story because that's just not 
the response that we expect, right? Maybe not especially from politicians, but, but none of us expect when someone is confronted and called out on something like that for them to just say, yeah, it's my fault, it was a terrible idea, um, and just admit it. We always expect people to shift the blame. That's what, I mean, never mind Ed Koch or however you say it, that's what my kids do, right? You know, whenever they break something and you walk in and they're standing there and you're like, what are you doing? They're like, well, my, my brother or sister, you know, um, well, if you just understood the extenuating circumstances, dad, um, well, they don't actually say extenuating <laughs> circumstances, but, but, you know, they just naturally, from the beginning, try to shift the blame. Um, we all do that, and I think that's what Paul is trying to safeguard against in this part of Romans. Um, so just to situate us again, I know I was gone last week, but we're in Romans 9 through 11 as we're working through the book, and here Paul is dealing with a specific question. First, in 1 through 8, he kind of proclaims this big picture story of the gospel that everyone is under sin and everyone is being saved by faith in Jesus Christ and gathered in. And in verses 12 and 13 of our reading, Paul kind of calls back to one of the big implications he makes of that. So he says, starting in verse 12, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's what he was saying, big picture, right? Jew or Gentile, whoever you are, if you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. But then that raises this question that Paul's been dealing with in these three chapters for his original hearers, which is, okay, but then what about Israel, right? In the Old Testament, God had this this one chosen people that had this kind of special place, and plenty of people in Israel are accepting Jesus, right? Paul and the other apostles are all, you know, I mean, are all from Israel, but lots of people are rejecting him too. And so how does that work, they're asking. And Paul's been dealing with that question, how can God be seen as faithful if um, not everyone in Israel ends up trusting in Jesus and finding salvation? And in what we worked through the last two weeks, Paul kind of stresses these two parts of an answer. Um, Next week, we're going to finally get to the full answer to that question. But first, he kind of stresses that salvation has always ultimately rested on God and on God's choice to save people. And then secondly, that salvation has always rested on faith, not by people doing good works or deserving it somehow. From Abraham to the present, he's been saying, that's how it's always worked. And now, Paul, in these verses, kind of focuses on what I think he predicts people will do in the, in the face of that, which is that they will try to shift the blame, that Paul is going to call them to trust in and submit to God, and he knows that they're going to try to shift the blame. But let me try to show that to you, because that might seem a little strange to say right up front. So if we start in the text in verse 14. Paul first focuses on how this salvation by faith comes to people, and particularly on how it comes um, to Israel. So in verses 14 and 15, he says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? He's just said, remember, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he says, how can they call on the one they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so there's this process 
that Paul's describing, which is the process that I think any of us would kind of work out if we thought about how do people ultimately come to meet Jesus. He says, first, God sends out people to preach, right, and to bring the good news. And he doesn't just mean like what I'm doing up here, right? But he means people, you know, to tell other people the good news about Jesus. How can anyone preach unless they're sent? God sends these people, and then those people preach it, and other people hear it. How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And then once they've heard it, they have to believe the message for themselves, and then that leads them to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So that's the process, right? You know, God sends preachers, and preachers preach, and then the hearers hear, and then the hearers believe, and then they call on the name of the Lord and are saved. And the reason, though, that Paul points that out is because he wants people to, he wants to keep his readers from shifting the blame in that process. Because the question that Paul's been revisiting over and over in this section of Romans is, so has God failed, right? And so he describes this process to try to stress the fact that all the parts of that process that depend on God have been fulfilled. So first he says, God sent people. At the end of verse 15, he quotes from Isaiah 52. And that quotation is about the way that the Messiah will come and then people will come and bear witness to him. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So Paul's saying, so that's happened, right? God has sent his Messiah and, and I and you know, people like me have come and we're proclaiming this good news to you. And he says those preachers have been heard. That's verse 17. He says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Those preachers have to be heard. And then he says they have been in verse 18. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Paul is there quoting from Psalm 19. And immediately Psalm 19 is talking about just the way that the sun and moon and stars bear witness to, um, to God and proclaim it to all of the earth, to everybody in the world, um, that, he, you know, that he's the Lord. But Paul seems to be using that as an image of what he and the early church is doing, right? They're going out into all the world and they're proclaiming this good news about Jesus, spreading God's word that widely. So he says, preachers have come and preached and, and people have heard them. But then, of course, you could also say, okay, well, like, they've heard it, but they haven't really understood it. Maybe the problem is that it's too hard to understand what they're saying. Um, They've missed it through no fault of their own. And so then Paul adds this second question in verse 19. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. So Paul's focusing in on that question of understanding, and he says that they should have understood what was happening, basically. That this message that he and other people are bringing, it's not some new thing, it's the way it's always worked. And so the first example he gives in what we just read is from Deuteronomy 32, where Moses tells Israel that God is going to work among the nations, drawing many of them to trust in him in a way that will make Israel jealous. And that, Paul says, that's happening right now. And then in verse 20, he gives another quotation. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. So that's from the prophet Isaiah. And Paul is saying that God himself says that he's going to go to those who didn't seek him, right? Those outside his people, the Gentiles, and gather them in. And then in verse 21, on the other side of the coin, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. 
Um, and those three quotations together are meant to address that, you know, people hear what Paul's saying and they're saying like, well, I mean, I, I, where, where are you getting that, right? That's, that seems like, I, I'm not, that doesn't make sense to me. And Paul's saying, no, this is always how it's worked, right? God has always expressed throughout Scripture that he has this heart for and concern for all the nations and that his own people um, are sinful and need salvation just like the rest of humanity. Um, and what Paul's really doing in that is he's trying to stress that, like, no, you've always had the information, right? That's this understanding piece of it. You've always had the information you need to know to trust in God. That the, the problem isn't your brain. The problem is one of rebellion, and it's a problem with your heart that um, you don't want to understand this message. And so here's, let's step back. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, okay, here's this process, right? God has to send preachers and they have to preach and you have to hear and hear both in the sense of like, just hear it, but hear it too in the sense of be able to understand it. And then you have to believe and then you have to, um, to, to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And what he's saying is everything up to the believing, all of that part of the process that depends on God has been done and it is happening. The reason he stresses that is to remove people's ability to shift the blame, right? Um, So they might say, well, God should, you know, he should tell us about this salvation then if he expects us to believe it. And Paul says, no, I mean, he's told you about it. And they should say, well, you know, well, well, we should, you know, it's too hard to understand. It's not our fault. And he says, no, like, we should have been able to understand it. Those things um, have been done. The issue isn't with your brain or the information or something outside of you. It's a question about belief. Because that's the point that Paul's ultimately trying to make. That, that the problem is unbelief for Israel. God has done all these things, but what hasn't happened for those in Israel that rejected Jesus is that they haven't believed in it and called on the name of the Lord. Paul says that in verse 16, right? But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Some accepted it, but some didn't believe it. And again, Paul stresses that isn't really a new thing. He quotes there from Isaiah 53, where back then, just as now, the prophet comes to God's people and proclaims God's word, and um, they choose not to believe it. So let me try to summarize all that, right? Again, Paul's big question in this section is, did God's promises fail, right? And what he's stressing here in these verses is that God's promises didn't fail because the parts that depended on God, he fulfilled. He did make himself known and proclaim his word to these people, Israel. Um, So it's not God's fault. The fault lies with the unbelief. So that's what he's saying here, right? What do we do with that? Because that's kind of a specific discussion about a specific question. Well, as I think about that part of Paul's discussion, there's kind of three things that it leaves me reflecting on. Um, It leaves me reflecting on a warning and a calling and a question. All right, a warning and a calling and a question. First, I think there's a warning in this text, a warning for us as the church. And let me just note this, right? One of the tensions I felt as we preached through Romans 9 through 11 is that um, 
Paul is discussing this specific question in his world about Israel, right? He's, he's Jewish, about half the early church is Jewish, and he's dealing with this, this struggle about the place of Israel. And it's hard sometimes to preach this um, for me because I'm very aware of the fact that there are people in our time and place and at different times in history who have used passages like this to excuse anti-Semitism, right? Or to try to have some discussion about um, about Jews in a, in a racist way. And that's a kind of hard thing because, because Scripture does wrestle with this tension between the church and Israel, right? Um, and we and modern religious Jews do have, I mean, we have a lot of overlap. We accept the Old Testament as God's word, but we part ways in really significant places like about Jesus and how we're supposed to understand something. So there is that tension there. But, um, but passages like this one that talk about Israel's unbelief, they, they can't be used to excuse hatred or things like that. And the reason for that is because when we read them, we should not be thinking primarily about Israel in the sense of like, you know, man, those Israelites, they were, you know, they were real dumb, like they just didn't get it. Instead, when we read about how God's people missed God's mission of salvation, um, about how they sought to be justified by the works of the law rather than by trusting in Jesus Christ, about how even people who were given the Bible and, and they, they saw God's works firsthand, they could still end up not believing. Those things aren't problems because, because they're Jewish, right? They're problems because they're religious, in the bad sense of the word, right? They're, they're, they're examples of self-serving, self-righteous religion. And all of us can be guilty of that. That's something that the church can constantly wrestle with. When Paul talks about how God's people are disobedient and obstinate while God is being found by those who are far off, that's still often the case. There are still plenty of disobedient, obstinate sinners like us sometimes in the church. And God is constantly saving the unlikely and the outsider. When Paul says that not all Israel accepted the good news, that should be a call to us to constantly be seeking to accept it. To make sure that we're chasing after Jesus and keeping the gospel the first thing and, um, and not trying to justify ourselves by works, but by having faith in Jesus. There's something especially that I think about as I read these chapters and think about the way that Paul addresses Israel and its unbelief and about how they missed Jesus in their religion um, here in America. I think that... Um, I mean, we have this, this history of Christianity as a religion in America, right? I mean, you know, I mean, historically, that was the, the, the religion of the overwhelming number of people here. And we often talk about that as if that was only a positive thing, as if that was just something that was good. But I think that what makes me nervous is that sometimes the way that I think we talk about Christianity in America sounds a lot like the way that these people talked about Israel, Every few years, there's some news story about how Christianity is, well, usually it's about how it's collapsing and disappearing in America, and that's alarmist, right? <laughs> that's not the world that we live in. Um, but it is true that a lot more Americans than there used to be, about a quarter of Americans would identify as no religion in particular, right? And I fully expect that that will continue to grow, and people who identify as Christians will shrink somewhat. But I think a lot of Christians um, freak out about that idea or are really worried about that. And, um, 
And honestly, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that because often I suspect that the greater part of that Christianity that is dying um, wasn't really the kind of Christianity we want to begin with. I was at a funeral a little while back, not here, but back in Nebraska, and, um, and it was at a church, and I sat through the funeral service, and not once in the half-hour service was Jesus ever mentioned. I counted. Never once was Jesus mentioned. There was a, a homily about, um, about what a nice person, you know, the person who had passed away was and how fondly we remember them and kind of a vague hope that we'd see them someday. But there was no cross and no resurrection and no, no message of God's salvation for sinners. And they had even, they'd even changed the words of the old hymns to avoid mentioning you know, the, our need for Jesus' salvation. And I sat through that funeral, and then I went to the meal afterwards and um, was sitting with some older folks that went to church at this church, and they were bemoaning how the church was dying and how young folks just weren't coming around anymore. And while I didn't say this because I'm not a horrible person, in my heart, I couldn't just help but thinking like, I mean, maybe it should die, right? I mean, what is this thing if Jesus isn't there anymore? I know that sounds harsh, but that's Paul's whole point, that, that it that Jesus is, that God's people might be outwardly religious, but if they don't have Jesus, they've missed the point of being God's people. It doesn't matter if that means losing our cultural influence, and it doesn't matter how much history we have built up around it, and it doesn't matter how fondly we, um, we remember kind of these outward trappings of religion. If we, if any church, loses Jesus, <laughs> loses a willingness to communicate that message about him, I mean, it's already dead, and it will probably die. I mean, that's, that's true of us, right? And I just hope our, our, our hearts beat with that. I mean, Kish, as I've been here now for, you know, more than a year and a half, it has history, and it has community, and it has stood in different ways for morality and mercy, and those are all good things, right? Those are all things that we can celebrate, but even if you have history and community and morality and mercy if you don't have Jesus at the center, right? If you don't have that, that, that cross and empty tomb, I mean, just beautiful message of Jesus Christ and the salvation he's worked for us, then we've missed the point of Christianity. And that's something that we always have to keep in mind. So that's the first thing this text, I think, gives us. A warning about our need to constantly keep Jesus at the center of things. At the same time, I think this text also speaks to our calling. It speaks to part of our calling. Um, when we read a text like this, um, we occupy an interesting place because on the one hand, we kind of identify with Israel in the ways that we can fail. But on the other hand, we're also called to identify with, um, with Paul and with the mission that he and the church is on. So in verse 15, Paul references Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And that text really stands as a background for everything that Paul um, is picturing in this one. So let me just roll back a little bit first. Let's look at Isaiah 52. So Isaiah is picturing God's future salvation, and he's speaking to Israel as she's in captivity and exile, and he's promising this coming Messiah, this coming um, servant of the Lord who is Jesus. That's how we understand it. And in verse 7, he actually starts talking about something that Jesus is going to do. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, 
who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So this is God's servant Jesus, first of all, right, that Isaiah is picturing. Jesus comes and brings this good news, um, and he proclaims that peace, and he publishes salvation and announces the Lord's reign. But then Paul applies that verse to all of us, right? Somehow we are all doing that too. And the reason for that is that Isaiah goes on then to picture this thing happening. So in verse 8 he says, The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. So these watchmen, you know, on the walls of Israel, they see this, this one coming and proclaiming this salvation of the Lord. And they take up that proclamation themselves. They're excited and rejoice and sing it forth. And then in verse 9, that, that spreads through all of Israel. And all of Israel is pictured as proclaiming this good news. And then ultimately in verse 10, here's what God ends up doing. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And if that theme sounds familiar, it's because that's one of the themes that Paul keeps sounding, right? That this has spread out to all the nations, and they're all being gathered in by this proclamation. So here's God's salvation that comes in Jesus to Israel, and then people that see it take up that, that good news and spread it, and then that spreads outward ultimately to all of the nations. That is this calling and hope that Paul proclaims, and we're all a part of that too. We often hear these verses highlighted to talk about missions and evangelism. If you've heard these verses before, that's probably the setting, right? How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And that is appropriate. That is a good application of these verses to call us to be willing to proclaim the good news about Jesus. The thing, though, I think, is that when I say that, I don't think that's probably news to any of us, right? I think most of us, when we read these verses, we're like, okay, yeah, we should be doing that. We should be (laughs) proclaiming the good news about Jesus to others. But that just kind of leaves us feeling guilty, I think. So let me note two things about how Paul talks about it here that I think are, are helpful to me as I think about the fact that we have that calling. The first one kind of comes out of Isaiah 52, How beautiful are the feet of one who brings good news, Paul says. That should remind us of our posture as we share that good news about Jesus, right? That that picture that Jesus comes and proclaims it, and then people hear it and sing out with joy and just join in the proclamation because of the beauty of the news that we're hearing. There's this thing that I do. Um, My wife can definitely testify to this, where I'll like read something or hear something on the radio that's really cool, right? That I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Um, And so I'll get home and I'll be like, Elizabeth, I have to tell you this thing. (laughs) And she'll be like cooking dinner or something and um, and totally not in the mood for it. But I don't care, right? So I go and just like stand in the kitchen while she's, you know, working and I'm like, oh man, listen to this. This is so cool. And And I just have to share that with her because it's so exciting. Oftentimes when we think about sharing our faith in Jesus, it does not feel like that, right? It feels like something unnatural. And maybe part of that is because we feel like we have to do it in really unnatural ways. There's this like, like, yeah, baseball is great, and you know what else is great? Knowing Jesus is your Lord and Savior kind of 
approach to evangelism that I think we have sometimes that gets, that gets awkward. But, um, but in Scripture, the picture of what we're called to do in sharing Jesus is really exactly the same as the picture of me just hearing this cool thing and having to share it with my wife. That I discover something awesome at the heart of the universe. The God who made us, you know, became one of us and died and rose again so that we might have forgiveness and new life and that in him we can find healing and meaning and hope. And that's awesome! And it's something that then we get to share with people. And when you have that attitude, you're freed from feeling like it's unnatural and weird because even though, um, I mean, even though it can, it can kind of be an, an odd thing, it's exciting, and so it's natural to share it with people. I knew a guy, um, this guy was probably more than anyone I've ever met gifted in evangelism, and I'm not saying that you should do exactly what he does here, right? I mean, he could just do this in this genuine way, but, but the way that he was gifted in evangelism was just that he was excited to, to share this with people in this way that I remember we were getting lunch once at McDonald's and it was at like two in the afternoon, right? So, I mean, there's nobody else in the McDonald's and, I mean, and this is McDonald's. This isn't like classy or anything, right? But, um, but he comes up to the, the girl at the counter and, you know, and, you know, and he's ordering and he's like, you look like you're having a rough day. And she's kind of like, yeah. And, he's, and he just is like, you know that God loves you specifically? And there's this moment where she's just like, Almost like, really? <laughs> is the look in her eyes. He's like, yeah, he loves you so much, and he died to work that love for you. And none of it was forced, right? Even though that's not a conversation that I would imagine myself having, it was just, you're having a rough day, and this is this exciting good news that I have, and I just want to share it with you. And we actually, I ended up standing around awkwardly for a half hour because everyone in the McDonald's ended up like coming up to the counter, and he had this conversation. Again, th- th- I can't do that, right? But... That's what it looks like to be someone who is bringing good news, right? With beauty. So this passage changes how we think about sharing Jesus with people. And I also think it gives us a kind of freedom as we do it. One of the reasons I think that we're often afraid to share Christ is because we measure our attempt by the outcome. Our success or failure in that moment is measured by whether the person, like, you know, accepts what we're saying or rejects it. And one of the things that always strikes me about Paul is this confidence that he has in the face of failure. I don't know if you've ever noticed this when you read about his ministry, but sometimes he goes and he preaches this sermon and all these people become Christians and believe. And sometimes he goes and preaches this sermon and there's a riot and they try to murder him. But um, regardless of what happens, he just gets up the next day and says, okay, we're on to the next thing, whether he succeeds or fails. And I think that part of the reason he's able to show that confidence is exactly what he's doing in these verses. He says, look, here's this process, right? Preachers preach and hearers hear and understand and, um, and then they believe and they trust in Jesus or they don't. And his, his stress is to say, like, there's a part of this process that I can be responsible for, right? And then there's a part of it that's just out of my hands. It's my job to proclaim Christ to you and to try to proclaim it in a way that you can hear and understand, and that's it. <laughs> the, the other part is up to you and to God. And I think there's actually a huge amount of freedom in recognizing that about Paul's attitude, that you aren't responsible for changing somebody's mind or changing somebody's heart. You are responsible 
you're, you don't have to, to be smart enough or clever enough or persuasive enough to, to pass some threshold, right? You just, as best you can, try to give people the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, and then you've been faithful. And faithfulness isn't measured by the outcomes of how those people respond. Faithfulness is just measured by faithfulness. So we have this good news to share, and we're called to share it, right? We have this calling, so we have a warning and a calling, and then there's one more thing that this passage left me reflecting on, and that isn't about kind of our job as a group, but just about our individual hearts. It leaves me with a question about our hearts. So in verse 16, which is kind of the hinge verse of this passage, Paul zeroes on, in on the issue, right? He says, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Right? This is the heart of what Paul's saying, that the issue for Israel is unbelief and this refusal to accept the good news. But the thing to recognize is that when Paul challenges Israel's unbelief, I don't think he's talking about this really conscious thing. Right? He's not saying that they consciously went through this process where they said, hmm, well, Jesus is the Messiah, and, um, and th- the Bible points to him as the Messiah, and you know what we should do is we should reject him and not believe in him. Right? <laughs> like Paul is not saying that they went through this kind of conscious process like that. Unbelief is subtler than that. And here's how it actually works. Our hearts are in love with sin. That's the first step of it. Our hearts are in love with some sin, and we know that to believe the gospel, we're going to have to confront that sin, right? Not that you stop sinning perfectly when you're a Christian, but becoming a Christian means repenting of your sin, acknowledging that it's wrong and seeking to turn from it. And and that sin can be a lot of different things. Maybe it's some secret vice. Maybe it's some, some bent to our life. Maybe it's just our pride, right, and our desire to rely on ourselves. But we know that to really put trust in Jesus would require us to turn from that sin, and so we don't want to believe it. And all of that happens down below the, the conscious surface level. That, um, that down in the dark, invisible places of our hearts, we do that, and then that warps the way that we think and view the world. See, if you asked the people that Paul is challenging here um, why they don't accept Jesus, they would not have said, you know, I mean, because of unbelief, they would have said, well, here's my, my rational objections to it, and here's my biblical arguments against it. And Paul does address those rational objections and biblical arguments, right? I mean, he spends a lot of Romans trying to address those sorts of questions, But his point here, and a point that he really comes back to throughout the book, is that that's only part of the battle because you're also going to have to confront what's going on in your heart, the sin in your heart. And that's something that he's really calling all of us to do. Let me just pose two ways that I feel like that might meet some of us. One, if you aren't a Christian or if you're wrestling with whether you believe in Jesus, and then the other one that it challenges you if you are a Christian. If you aren't a Christian, right, if you're exploring it or wrestling with it, it is worth spending some time reflecting on what's going on down in your heart as you do that. Um, I want to be careful here because I can't presume to speak for you, right? And you're going through your own kind of journey and thinking through stuff for yourself. But one of the things I've noticed is that as people wrestle with Christianity, what they often want to visit about are kind of these out 
word intellectual things, right? They want to have conversations about the problem of evil and evolution and the manuscript evidence for the New Testament and all these kind of intellectual questions that they have. Um, And I think sometimes Christians are tempted to camp on those same issues and we just hear these long arguments about those things that go on and on. And again, that isn't wrong and there are real questions there. And frankly, if you want to talk about, like, the manuscript evidence for the New Testament, like, I am happy to talk with you about that, right? That's totally my jam. But, but I think that oftentimes those sorts of questions distract us from what we're really struggling with as we wrestle with Christianity. I think sometimes that people want to talk about evidence and arguments because then you don't have to talk about the really hard stuff, about how much this would cost me and what it would do to my relationships and what it would ask me to give up and what it would call me to change about my heart. And I'm not saying that the intellectual questions aren't important, right? But I am saying that if you, um, if you don't shine a light down in your heart on those deeper struggles, I don't think the intellectual stuff will really matter because, you know, it'll get answered or it won't, but you'll just go on to some other outside objection, right? Because you're not really confronting the struggles that matter. So if you're in that place, just think about that and ask yourself, kind of what is going on in your heart, and if maybe there aren't some of those deeper things that you need to wrestle with as you're processing Christianity. And then if you are a Christian, in some ways, I think that same thing applies to us. Um, If you are a Christian, it's still constantly necessary for us to check our hearts and our own unbelief. Sin can mess up how we think as well. It can warp how we read the Bible and it can make us miss things that should be obvious. There is an unbelief that dwells in all of our hearts. Now, I don't mean by that, of course, absolute unbelief, right? To become a Christian means that you're putting your faith in Jesus and trusting in him. But it's, it's what the centurion says to Jesus. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It is still easy for us as God's people to harbor sin in our heart in a way that means that in different parts of our lives, we're not willing to believe what God says to us. And it's easy for us to let that that warp the way we think about Christianity, right? I mean, it's, it, that's, that's how Christians can sometimes be so wrong about, about things that should be so clear to them, right? Like, when we ask, like, how could these people, you know, I mean, back 150 years ago, how could these Christians defend slavery, right? When, when it's so clearly wrong, the answer is that they've got sin, right? They've got racism and greed and, 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 and these sins in their hearts, and they don't challenge those sins with scripture. And so that unbelief warps the way that they're thinking about their faith. And so what all of us are really called to do is to come back to that same question of our hearts, to pray to God to show us the ways that we're failing to believe the good news of the gospel and to more and more be, um, be called to trust in Jesus and shaped in the ways that God wants us to be shaped. Because that's ultimately all of us, the thing that will make the difference and the thing that will form us more and more into the image of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would um, be at work in our people. Lord, as we go wrong, as we get things wrong about you, as we fail to believe the gospel of what you've done for us in Jesus and what you've done for others in Jesus, I pray that you would, um, yeah, just teach and correct us. Help us to spread the good news of the love you've shown us in Jesus widely to the world and help us to trust in him and always keep him center, at the center of things.
We pray this in his name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Lost are saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Every Great name.
Good to worship with all of you this morning. Um, make sure to greet one another as you go. There is a time of fellowship after the service. Make sure to greet um, Deb as this is the Sunday that we're kind of saying farewell to her for those of you that know her. Um, at noon we will be having a big potluck where everyone can, you know, who knows her can gather with her. So please join us for that. Um, please do also join us Wednesday night for the um, Thanksgiving community service as it will be a good time for us to rejoice in all that the Lord has done for us. And now go with this message in your hearts and on your lips that dying Jesus Christ destroyed our death, that rising he restored our life, and that we are called to carry that beautiful news until he comes again in glory. Amen.